0: Good morning. Welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is Matthew, one of the elders here. Grateful that God's brought us all together this morning. If you're joining us today for the first time, if you're a guest, we've been journeying through the book of Matthew. So you can take out your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 21. I remember a famous uh, comic strip. I don't know if it's famous. It's famous to me that showed a man who was drowning in the middle of the ocean and he was crying out to God to to save him and along comes a floating log and he lets it pass and then a few minutes go by and he's, God save me and a a life jacket comes by and he lets it pass and he cries out, God save me and finally this big coast guard vessel comes and and he waves them off And he says, God save me. And the guy drowns. And he gets to heaven, and he's like, what gives, Lord? (laughs) That's the joke. (laughs) That God had been sending those things to him. Come on, guys, you're a little dense out there this morning. (laughs) And this morning, we come to a place in the scriptures. We're going to look at three different parables. And these parables are all about God sending people to save his people. The parables are about God sending and choosing people to go to rescue his people and their continued rejection of it. So if you have your Bibles, I need to set us up with some context. We're going to be going through somewhat a larger swath of scripture this morning, and I need to show you why. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you've led us to this place in the service where we now can be instructed by you. Would you open our hearts to receive what you have for us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray, and I pray, that all of our hearts would be enamored with the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ and all that He is for us. And help me as I preach, in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're taking a somewhat larger swath of Scripture this morning. In the next several chapters here, from chapter 21 to chapter 24, Jesus will be in the temple. And we made the point last week... That the gospel writers spend a lot of time looking at the last week of Jesus' life. That most of the gospel writers spend about a third of their time talking about the last seven days of Jesus' life. In John's gospel, he almost spends half of his time just talking about the last seven days of Jesus' life. So here now, in Matthew's gospel, he's going to take three chapters within the last week of Jesus' life to explain what Jesus was doing in the temple. He's going to take three chapters in the last seven days of Jesus' life to talk about what Jesus does in the temple. Because largely what Jesus is doing here from chapters 21 to 24 is he's confronting the religious establishment of his day. Jesus is confronting the religious establishment of Israel that he finds himself in, and he does so by confronting them within the temple. So what did we just look at? We looked at Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 to 22. What does Jesus do here? He comes up onto a fig tree, and this fig tree is figurative to what he sees in the temple. It's figurative to what he sees about the spiritual life of Israel as he's looking at the temple. There's nothing on it. He's going somewhere to be fed. It says that he's hungry, so he goes up to a tree, and there's nothing on the tree. People had been going to the temple to be fed by God, to hear from God, to taste and see that the Lord is good, and they got there, and there was nothing there for them. It was empty. It was dead. And so Jesus curses the tree. And the tree withers. There's no fruit on you anyway, he says. And this is figurative to what Jesus is saying about the religious establishment of his day. It's figurative to what's happening in the temple in his day. It's dead. There's nothing on it anyway. may as well just get rid of it. You may as well curse it and say bye-bye to it. So again, it says moving down now. In twenty-one, twenty-three, and when he entered the temple, he's back. He's still there. He's confronted by the religious leaders yet again. One of my favorite commentators uh, on this is Dale Ralph. Uh, Bruner, and he loved to replace, in his translation of the Greek text, where it says the chief priests and the elders of, the, of, 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 the, of Israel, he loves to replace chief priests with senior pastors. <laughs> so every time you read what Bruner says, he, he would read it like this, and when he entered the temple, the senior pastors and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. Oh. <laughs> it's quite the indictment. It's a strong indictment that, that Jesus is giving, and Bruner brings it home by talking about the speaking to the religious establishment of his day. There's a, a famous book by James Joyce called uh, A Portrait of the Artist, where he says this. Tell us, Delidus, do you kiss your mother before you go to bed? And Stephen answered, I do. So he turns to the other fellows and says, Oh, I say, here's a fellow who says he kisses his mom every night before he goes to bed. And the other fellows stopped their game and turned around and started laughing at him. And he, and he blushed, and he said, I do not. He said, Oh, say, there's a fellow here that says that he never kisses his mother before he goes to bed at night. And they all laughed again. What does that have to do with what I'm talking about? It's because... This next section here from 23 to 27, as we're understanding the context of these parables. The religious leaders and the establishment were coming up to Jesus trying to stump him, just as this character was in the Joyce novel. They came up to him and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say it's from heaven, he will say to us, Why then didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, because they thought that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Well, then neither will I tell you, by what authority do I do these things? He stumps them. The religious establishment, the religious authority of his day, were trying to squeeze him into a box. They were trying to trick him. They were trying to say that his authority could not possibly be from God, because if his authority was from God, then he would be God himself. And so he puts it back on them. And by putting it back on them, they have no answer for him. He absolutely confounds and stumps them. So while standing in the temple, while confronting and rebuking the religious establishment of his day, he begins to tell three parables, and that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. We're going to tell all three of these parables, and we're going to apply them to our lives, because they're basically teaching the same point. These three parables are basically teaching the same point, which is why we're going to look at them together. And one way to look at them, and an important way to look at them that I want to press into us first, is that they're teaching us through the lens of redemptive history. They're teaching us through the lens of redemptive history. Now what do I mean by that? The first parable here will be the parable of the two sons, which commentators will note and scholars will note is largely Israel's history up to this point. The second parable which is the parable of the tenants, with the son coming ultimately to these tenants, is largely about the time when Jesus has come to the people of Israel to save them. And the last one, which is the parable of the wedding feast, is the era of the church age that we find ourselves in now. So through these three parables, you can largely see a swath of redemptive history. Israel, The time of Jesus until the destruction of the temple, and now the time of the church age when God is inviting people to this wedding feast. So let's look at each three, and I'll try to apply them to us. First, the parable of the two sons. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. And then he went to the other son and said the same. And he said, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. You see what Jesus is saying there. At first the kingdom came unto Israel. John the Baptist is the last of the prophets. He's symbolizing the end of the prophetic age. John the Baptist comes to the people of Israel. And he says, come, come, come. And they say, no. So then he goes instead to the prostitutes and tax collectors, it says. And at first they're weary. They say, nah. But later they go. They come unto him. They come unto Jesus. You see, Jesus is talking about the nature of the gospel being preached to the nations. First going to Israel, who will reject it. And then going to the Gentiles. Then going to those who were not of the nation of Israel. You know, in verse 21, uh, 31, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, which in the old King James is verily, verily, I say unto thee, right? Or in the Greek, it's amen. And I know, John, you love to say amen, and that's great. And by amen, we usually mean, I like what that guy just said. But what it means here in context is stop and listen. I'm about to tell you something extremely important. Stop and listen. I'm about to tell you something extremely important. Who is he talking to here? He's talking to the religious elite. And he tells them that there is radical grace to those who come late to the party. There is radical grace. He's speaking to the religious elite, the senior pastors and elders of his day. And he's saying, truly, listen, stop, stop, and listen to me. The radical grace is available for those that come late. Hold that thought while we look at the next parable. I'm going to press this into us in a moment and apply it to us. The second parable is about the son who comes now and is being killed. Here another parable, verse 33. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. And he put a fence around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower, and then he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. And let the vineyard to other, lent the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is in parabolic form. The story that Jesus himself has stepped into. This is the place within redemptive history, the story of God redeeming the world through his son, Jesus Christ, when at last, finally, to finally plead with these tenants, God has sent his own son. The landowner sends his son to plead with the tenants. And they look opportunistically, and they say, if we kill this one, then we can have his inheritance. you see the deep irony? That in a miraculous gospel turn, the way that they do receive his inheritance is because he died for them. The way that they ultimately do actually receive what was never theirs. They have no right to his inheritance. He is the son of the landowner. And they say, if we kill him, we'll get his inheritance. In the most dramatic display of grace, radical, unmerited mercy, they're actually right. The way that they do receive the son's inheritance, the way that they do become fellow brothers and sisters, fellow heirs with the son of the king, is by them crucifying him. There's deep irony in the parable. That the Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, speaks the cosmos into being, gave you the last breath that you breathed one second ago, came to you. And it's not the Jews that killed Jesus exclusively. It's every human heart. It's every human being's sin that crucified the Son of God to try to steal and grab his inheritance. And an ironic radically counterintuitive turn, it's the very thing that ultimately saves us. The son dying for the ones that he came for. And finally, read the last parable, and then I'll apply it to us. Verse 22, starting at verse 1. And again, third parable. Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, they treated them shamefully and they killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there... A man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot. Cast him to the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For there are many who are called, but there are few that are chosen. Hmm. Jesus in the temple, speaking to the religious elite, speaks to them in three different parables outlining for us what could be interpreted as redemptive history to Israel. Jesus is coming, and now to the church, the gathering in of this wedding feast. Three different parables, though, that are largely telling the same story. God sending people to call people, people rejecting it. Let's look at the tenant farmers. What do we learn? Who are they? Tenant farmers. This middle parable there. It's a landowner, okay? The scene that's set up here is one of a landowner who owns this land. He's, a, he's an investor of sorts, okay? He equips the land for everything it needs. He, he digs the hole. He builds the wine press. He builds a tower around it to protect it and so on and so forth. And their job is to pay him rent, to give him a commission, a return on his investment of sorts, to give them some of the fruit in return. It's a very reasonable arrangement, right? Something we experience all the time, Today, but whenever he sends someone to gather the rent, they attack and they kill him. Why do they do that? Every time he sends someone to gather some of the fruit, every time he sends someone to gather some of the return on his investments, a commission of sorts to pay rent, they attack and kill them. Why do they do that? Because they want to be the owners. They want to be the owners. Anyone who came along reminded them that they were tenants. Anyone who came along reminded them that they were not the owner. And the one who reminded them most that they were not the owner and that they were tenants was the son. Listen to a place in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says this. When the Lord your God brings you out in the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of good things that you did not fill, cisterns full that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God whom you shall fear the trajectory of the human heart is to forget the scriptures here in deuteronomy chapter six speak to our weakness when you're in these good cities that you didn't build when you're in houses that are full of good things that you didn't fill when you're eating food from vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant don't forget god It was the Lord who is the one that brought you up out of the house of slavery, out of the house of Egypt. You didn't do this. The trajectory of our hearts is to want to be in the place of owner. The trajectory of our human hearts is to want to be in a place to forget and be the masters of our own destiny and to look at everything behind us and say, look at all the good things that I've done. Look at what I've created. One of the things that always Helps me. It's a small thing that helps me when I get to this point. Okay, I was born in 20th century Western civilization America to a middle class family. I was not born in the 5th century BC in Tibet in a hut. I don't care how smart I would have been in 5th century BC in Tibet. I wouldn't have the life that I do now. I couldn't just have pulled myself up on my bootstraps and, and you know kind of got things together and made things happen. And the same is true for you. There's so much in your life that is absolutely a gift to you. Everything in your life is actually a gift to you. Everything is a grace. You didn't deserve it. You didn't do it. You weren't born with the mind you have. You weren't born in the, to, to choose your parents. Everything is an absolute gift to us. And yet our tendency is to want to be the owner. And we're reminded most of it when the sun comes on the scene. Because that's the nature of grace. Oh, yes, grace is comforting. Grace can be absolutely comforting. But the other side of grace, (laughs) the other side of grace means that you're a miserable wretch, that you need to be saved. The other side of grace is that you don't have your act together. The other side of grace is that you're a tenant. The other side of grace is that you're not the owner. And when the sun comes, when the sun comes in, the, in this parable, and when the sun comes in the man and the person of Jesus Christ, it puts that radically on display, and it's right in your face. You are absolutely loved and cherished by God, and at the same time, without Him, you will perish forever in hell. That's the nature of grace. It comforts and it confronts. And if it doesn't do that for you, I don't think you understand what it means. If the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't both comfort you and confront you, you don't understand it. You don't understand it. The condition of the human heart is that we are all tenants, but we all want to be owners. They didn't build anything. And anything that reminds them that they're not owners, they beat, they attack, they kill. This text absolutely speaks to the radical nature of redemptive history, but it also speaks to every human heart. And that's the first thing I want you to see this morning. That's the first thing I want this text, and I think what God is speaking to us this morning, the radical nature of grace and how it can either comfort and confront, and I should further say, as I said a moment ago, it must comfort and it must confront the human heart. It must But when it does, but when it does, that's when it becomes oh so sweet to us. When we realize that we didn't deserve any of it. When we just realize that we put ourselves in the place of the tenants in this parable. We're the ones who crucified the Son of God. We're the ones who wanted to be in the place of owner but aren't. Everything that we have is a gift to us, and it is by God's sheer mercy and grace to us that he actually did send the Son. You don't think the the landowner knew what would happen when he sent his Son? You don't think the landowner knew what would happen when he sent his Son? You don't think God knew what would happen when he sent his Son? You don't think Jesus knew what would happen when the Father asked him to do? It came to you out of sheer mercy and love. Mercy and love. The second thing I want to press into us, and I think this text has to say to us today, verse 22, uh, chapter 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. Who's he talking to? Who's the them? Who is the them? It's, it's the religious elite It's the leaders. It's the establishment. In other words, go with me for a moment. It's the people who, on all outward appearances, have done everything right. It's the people who, on all outward appearances, had checked every box. He's speaking to people like you and me. He's speaking to people like you and me Who know how to keep it together. Who know how to dress ourselves up and so on and so forth. Who know how to follow the right rules. Believe the right doctrinal standards even. And therefore are all right and accepted with God. He's talking to the people who would have seen by every outward appearance to have done everything right. So to us, we must hear and see how does mercy come to these people. Verse 1 to 4. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to come to the wedding feast, but they would not come. All mercy, all mercy, all grace starts with a call. To call those who had been invited. It starts with the initiation of the king first. They weren't, you know, it's not like they were sitting outside of uh, Buckingham Palace waiting to go to the royal wedding, hoping to be on the lottery list, you know, to get in. The king went to them first, and called them. And those religious elite, it says that they didn't come. It says in verse, the end of verse 3, but they would not come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited. They're already invited. They know the parties, they know the parties on its way. They know that the arrangements and preparations are being made. And it's Time to call them. They've already been invited. Time to come and they don't come. Which is why these three parables are all still telling the same story, aren't they? God going to his people, his people not responding, and God moving on to another people. Widening the scope of the invitation. That's what it's gonna happen later in this this parable, right? Later in this parable, the scope is gonna be widened, and more people well then fine, go to everybody. Go to the good and bad. Go into the city. Go to the street corners. Invite any who would come. So let me ask you, as those who are most likely in this room, to be the them of verse 22, 1. Who've been invited. Are you coming to him? When you were baptized, you said, I'm coming to him. Are you coming to him? When you joined the church, you said, I'm coming to him. Are you coming to him? Are you going to him? What does it mean to come? It means are you sitting at the king's table? Are you rejoicing in him? Are you basking and relishing in the feast that he's laid before you? Are you still coming? He's calling you. The feast is ready. The table is prepared. He's just saying, come. You've been invited. Come to the table. Come taste and see. Come celebrate. Come rest. Come sit. Come feast with the king. He calls you. Why did not they come, though? Why don't we come? Verse 5, they had other things to do. They get so consumed with the other things to do. They didn't come because they had other things to do. They had business affairs to take care of, it says. One had to go over and do this. One had to deal with his farm, another to his business. There's so many things that keep us from coming. You know, the, the world around us is always on, on like a, like a videotape. We see it so visually, and so oftentimes the kingdom of God and what God is saying to us in his feast is almost like audio. We see so clearly visually, and it's like this dull audio in the back of our mind, but it's more true than the things that you see right in front of your face. He's calling you to come and to feast and to rest. All you have to do is come to him. So here's the test. (laughs) Everyone must first be called. The first group gets a call and they don't respond. The second group gets a call and they do respond, right? But either way, they both get a call. There's no coming to Jesus without a call. The first group gets a call, they don't respond. The second group gets a call and they do respond. But it's all initiating with a call. Anyone, here's the test, anyone who comes to Jesus ultimately realizes at some point that it wasn't your idea. Everyone that comes to Jesus ultimately realizes at some point that it wasn't your idea. It was Him coming to you. You were decided upon. Tis not that I did choose thee, for thou, O Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, but thou hast chosen me. Thou from sin that stained me hast cleansed me and set me free. Of all that hast ordained me that I should live to thee. Twas sovereign mercy calling me, And taught my opening mind. The world had else enthralled me. To heavenly's glory blind. My heart owns none before thee. For thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing. If I love thee. Thou must have loved me first. He called you. He put his affection on you first. Which means. Let me press this in one practical way. If he called you first, let me press this into one practical application. Something that I struggle with, and I've talked about before, is struggling with despondency and depression, and something that I've been struggling with a lot lately. And this truth has been pressed into my heart and given me such relief. Here's—I read this actually. Uh, I read this actually off a gospel-centered mom's blog. All right, okay. <laughs> Not advocating women preachers, all right, but women bloggers, keep it up. <laughs> she said, here's a lie that people believe. If you struggle with anxiety and depression, then God can't use you for his glory. When we fall for this lie and given to worry, the worry spirals into guilt. The depression and the anxiety that promised control and peace suddenly turns on us. What kind of Christian are you? Your faith is so weak. But every struggle, every weakness is an opportunity to put God's glory on display. When we lay our depression and anxiety at the foot of the cross again and again and again, we open our hearts for the power of Jesus Christ to dwell in us. The very thing that shows us our guilt is the same thing that shows us the beauty of our Savior. And when Satan throws your anxiety and depression in your face and says, you did it again, you look to the cross. Because here's the truth. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. More gladly, therefore, I will boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If he called you he called you because you were a tenant. He called you because you were just on the wayside. He called you not for something that He inherently saw good in you. He called you because He simply loves you and He put His affection on you. And that's the point I wanted to press into you this morning. You don't ultimately come to Him before He first comes to you. And lastly, I'll say before I draw us to a close, there is a lot of us in here who've been experiencing This kind of tug for a while, this kind of call to come to Him. I just want to encourage you to not reject it because the invitation ultimately isn't there forever. Yes, all can come to Jesus at His invitation, but we don't choose when to come to the party. The table's set, the feast is coming. And he's calling us. So don't reject it this morning. If you feel the tug, if you feel the call, if you feel the pull, repent of your sin and turn to him. Turn to him in faith and trust. If you want to talk more about that, I'll be available after the service. We're going to have a prayer team up here at the end of the service. Would love to talk to you about that. Who would love to talk about what it means to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ and to be saved, to be a Christian. Don't let the day pass. Don't let the moment pass. You don't know how long the invitation will be there. Well, let me draw us to a close. You notice in chapter 21, verse 42, Jesus. Uh, makes a quotation here. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The owner of the vineyard had sent his servants to get fruit from the tenants. They'd beaten some and killed others. But then, of course, they killed the son. And the meaning, of course, as we've said, is that God owns the vineyard. God owns the vineyard of Israel. It's supposed to bear fruit, Supposed to bear fruit unto God, and he has sent prophets and wise men to gather his fruit, and he finally sends his fruit. But the leaders of Israel rebel and they kill the Son of God. But this passage, Peter will pick up on it in Acts chapter 4. Peter will pick up on it in his sermon in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John have been arrested in context in Acts chapter 4 for causing a stir. Uh, They were healing, and they were teaching about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the next day, the Jewish leaders asked them by what power they were doing these things. What power were they raising people from the dead and so on? And Peter answers, and and look what he says. Starting at Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what? means this man has been healed. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing well before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else For there is no name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved. There is that irony again. The power that the apostles had to heal, to raise people from the dead, to preach, was in the power of the name of Jesus Christ, who was the cornerstone, who was rejected. And the deep irony is that he was rejected and had to be rejected for your sake in my sake. And when we find that confronting reality of the gospel, it then can bring us that comforting balm. Because there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Don't be like the builders this morning. Do not reject him. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and may it just be absolutely marvelous in all of our eyes. Let us pray.